You're listening to an EG Property Podcast special on ESG. I'm Tim Burke, EG's Deputy Editor. You're about to hear a panel discussion from our ESG Breakfast Briefing held earlier this month. The topic is health equity and the role that the real estate industry and built environment can play in addressing health inequalities in the communities it serves and within its own companies. Our six guests from across the sector are Rob Charlton, Chief Executive at Space Group, Pete Gladwell, Group Social Impact and Investment Director at LNG, Divya Heriamani Herrero, Associate Director and Sustainable Design and Wellbeing Service Line Lead at Longevity, Cara Imbrelo, Partner at Charles Russell Speechley's, Federico Montella, Head of ESG and Sustainability at Lambert Smithampton, and Jane Mudd, Leader of Newport City Council. We started with Pete Gladwell's thoughts on whether real estate has typically addressed the issue of health equity as closely as it should. When we think about real estate at its broadest level, and I'm kind of thinking both operationally but also institutionally, uh, has the industry been involved enough in, in the conversation about, about health equity? And, and if, it, if it hasn't been, how does it change how it sees its, its view in, in, in debating this topic? I mean, genuinely, that's why I was so excited when you guys said you were putting this event on, because it, it's been something I've been in real estate for kind of 15 years now, despite being surprisingly young. Um, but uh, but I, I just don't think we have engaged with it at all. And, and we have a huge impact. Uh, we know the implications of real estate on carbon. We don't really know the implications of real estate on health equity. Um, so, so, you know, the work with Mar the, uh, Marmot and the IHE, one of my favourite moments um, in that whole project, because we, we, the, the report you're referring to was a partnership with, between LNG and, and the uh, team, the academic team, was when we had the Marmot team, including Sir Michael and our housing team, who had all read the draft report, just talking about what can we do as housing developers and build to rent managers and uh, you know we own Carla a modular housing factory so what are the implications for those businesses in terms of how we push health equity and you'll see in coming months that various things roll out from LNG as we really kind of embed this in our business practice but you know the, the genuinely exciting thing about this for me is I, I'm not going to for a moment sit here and say that we have all the answers I feel like we're on the nursery slopes of this and environmental space and the, the social even the social space i think we as an industry are getting better at and understanding more of but actually this is a really exciting area and i put out a kind of plea to all of you we're actually just hiring at the moment if anyone fancies coming and joining the team um but um but actually you know a plea to all of you to just be engaging with this thinking about the implications for your businesses because there's kind of cutting edge leadership positions to be taken that will be great for your business and great for society and change thousands of people's lives if we can do this right. So it's a really exciting time for us as an industry and um, I hope I'm, maybe this discussion will inspire a few of you to kind of embrace it and grab it in your, your area. And you, you talk about, about build to rent there. I wonder, is are there opportunities maybe for more nascent markets that are developing <clears throat> To, to make greater strides here. And, uh, you know, Kari, you've, you've talked about um, your work with life sciences, again, really, really fast growing, undergoing a lot of change. Does the pace of growth in some markets mean it's easier to adapt quickly and, um, and sort of introduce these aspects to broader strategic thinking? I think it can. And I think um, I've got clients in the life science space who actually 
want to use their prominence in that industry to be a real market leader. So um, say, okay, well, we're going to um, we're going to be rolling out um, sustainability guidelines that become the norm um, that really promote tenants to do things that are quite specific, actually. So not only for their alterations, but also that have real operational implications. So designing floor plans that promote daylight. Um, ensuring easy access to water, ensuring um, a good mix of biophilia, um, ensuring that there are community events and social things that, that promote cohesion. Um, and actually, I think it, it's a, a brave space, but there is a real role for market leaders um, and then location leaders. So if you're, if you're in a state, you can be dominant and you can actually have a real impact um, and be establishing the new norm. And I think others will follow suit, which is, um, Great responsibility, but it will also have great impact. Do you, do you mind if I, I, th I totally agree? Oh, please, do you mind if I just? I think even this may sound like a really nebulous topic, but it's even things like if you own a building, are you paying your cleaners and your security guards sick leave? Because if you aren't, then they're probably going to be getting COVID and other diseases and still coming back into the office because you aren't paying <laughs> them if they don't come back in. <laughs> so you're perpetuating a situation where lots of people are getting ill because of the structural employment practices that you've put in place. And so this doesn't have to be, there, there, there are social equivalents of like just making sure you turn the lights off. There are small things that we as an industry can do that will genuinely affect people's lives and, and address this health inequality balance. Um, it doesn't have to be huge, amazing, let's redesign all of our build to rent schemes. Although. If someone wants to do that, I'd be very excited to, to see what they come up with. Can I also jump in, I think, on the opportunity piece? Uh, let's think, for example, about the opportunity that the logistics sector and the industrial sector have. Uh, the logistics sector obviously has completely changed uh, in the last uh, couple of years. It's, it's changing the cities as well where we live in. Here's the greatest opportunity because uh, such developments actually are happening more likely than not, in the proximity of disadvantaged areas. And so it's about realizing that potential. It's about connecting the dots here. So in communities that are in need of specific outcomes, that's exactly where you can operate and make that huge change. So there are, like I was mentioning, tools and data banks, and uh, we, we, we can really support this uh, process of started to engage in the health agenda uh, or the social well-being agenda as well. And like Pete was saying, it's not really that difficult. Another, uh, I think, tool that uh, we have is actually having uh, or promoting uh, living wage um, accreditation, which is, again, a very simple uh, baseline onto which to build a fairer society and one that is also uh, healthier. Uh, Again, very applicable, I think, to the sectors that I mentioned before. So great, great opportunity, not just for office real estate. Has, um, has COVID <clears throat> changed the way that we frame this discussion, do you all think? E either because of inequalities um, going into the pandemic or, or, or <clears throat> challenges that, that, have been, that have become more apparent coming out of it? I think there's a whole issue around mental health that we haven't faced yet. Um, a lot of people working from home. I know everyone thinks it's fantastic and it's great and we're still in that kind of period of really enjoying it. But I'm absolutely sure we're, we're building up an issue around mental health. We are a, you know, we like to interact as people. Um, and, and I just think that's something further down the line that is, is gonna be an issue. Um, there's a lot of things going on. <clears throat> when, when someone's in the office, you can, you can see how they're feeling. You can 
Um, you can help them. Uh, we were just talking earlier about people um, working long hours and working weekends because it's just easy to pop in on the computer. Um, I, I think um, that is going to have an impact. Like the way we work has fundamentally changed, and, and I think um, it's great at the moment, but it will have a mental health issue, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's, um, it's after, before the pandemic, there was a study that said um, it was a survey for the workforce. <coughs> we were still working at offices on a daily basis. And there was about 60% of work people thought, um, felt lonely. And so this, is, this was before the pandemic. And I'm in awe of what the Loneliness Lab are doing. It's a partnership with Lendlease. And I really urge everybody to look into their um, principles of design for connection because they, they frame things in, in ways where I'm still working out projects where the architects won't think about these things. And there has to be a person to say, wait, you can't just have an easy route that somebody comes into the door and then goes straight to their desk. We need to create these opportunities for connection because that is what we're really missing and what was so key and so apparent during COVID that we missed that, those interactions with the people that we're working with and creating those spaces you walk in. There's some area where you can idle a bit. There's that opportunity that somebody comes up to you and say, oh, hey, um, can you help me with this? Or, oh, do you want to grab a coffee? And creating those opportunities has been and is still slightly challenging because they're very easy principles, but still today with big projects, we're still sometimes missing like the fundamentals of why we're coming into the office to connect, not just to be working. Jane, um, when, you, when you look at, at Newport, what does, what does a healthy town or city look like to you and how much of it is reliant on steps being taken by, by various parties across the built environment? I think it's huge. And I'm really keen to stress that when we talk about this, this is about um, the, the public sector, the private sector and third sector partners coming together because we can't achieve any of this in isolation. And I'm really glad that we've touched on the issues around um, mental health and social isolation because what we know is that in dense urban environments actually the isolation increases depression increases and so we have to look at what we can do to try and address some of this what we're doing um, as a city and um, we we are behind the curve with this so i'd hold up the example of coventry who became a marmot city in 2013 you know really grasping these principles and trying to take those forward but we're looking at this as well, and it's not just about um, the buildings and how we use the buildings, but what about um, outside of those buildings as well, the active travel opportunities, and also green in the environment as well. And we can make small, small steps around this, really small incremental changes that actually make a big difference to people's lives. If they've got a green space to go out to in, in, in their lunch break, if there's a green social space, and um, what can businesses do with that? Well, they can look at their own facilities, we can look at um, their own buildings, but actually work in partnership with us to sponsor those spaces, because we can't do it on our own. And um, we're facing increasing financial pressures, but working together, we can make those adjustments that I think ultimately will give everybody a better quality of life, and that's what we're working towards. And I'd say that's reflected across the whole Key Cities group, and I'd encourage anyone to um, get in touch with any of our members if you've got any ideas, because 
we haven't got all the ideas, but we are the facilitators and we can help you take it forwards. Do we, um, do we have any questions from the floor? I'm afraid if anyone's asking on um, Slido, I'm not yet seeing the actual screen on our, um, on our screen here. I don't know if anyone's able to, um, to fix that. Yeah, if we could get a microphone. Um, hi, it's, uh, sorry, James Pargett from GAA. Um, I, I actually put a, a question on Slido, but it's good to be able to talk about it because it was only 160 <laughs> character limits. So um, I was just, uh, some years ago, I, I saw some uh, US research which described housing as a vaccine, uh, really getting right to the heart of how investment in good quality homes, as an example, I know we're talking about all sorts of buildings today, uh, but homes in particular uh, gave benefits uh, to people growing up in them, living in them, uh, taking care of their families. <clears throat> and investment in that could offset, if you like, if you're just thinking in financial terms, the you know, and pro produce savings and benefits from health, uh, education, crime, a whole range of, 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 of other things. And I suppose, I suppose my question is, how do we collaborate to embed those sort of principles and the understanding of those principles into sort of pub public policy. Jane, it feels like that's back to your point about the need to, to pull so many various parties together and onto the same page. Absolutely, and, and I think we need to make that, when it comes to public policy, we do need to make that shift, don't we, in, um, from perhaps uh, local government, particularly with, with the, the housing level, being the provider to that facilitation role. So how can we help you to do that? It's a great invest investment in housing, particularly, is a great investment. We've made great advances with modern methods of um, construction. And what we can actually do is increase supply very quickly. Um, and to all the investors in the room, what I would say is what a great investment opportunity because you'll get a great return on your investment of the medium to long term. So um, I, there is a recognition of that, but speaking from um, a sort of public sector perspective, I'd say that we need to continue to, to have this engagement. Come and talk to us, uh, approach us, because I think you'll find in the 21st century we've got a, a different perspective on this to, to what people might have experienced traditionally. And we, we're keen, actually, if we don't take any risks, how will we move forward? So, um, and we're keen to share those risks with developers, with investors, and um, really try and take that forward. But you, are, you are absolutely right about housing. And we have a huge crisis in this country, all across the UK today, in terms of access to good quality homes um, at, at every level. Sorry, you look like you were about to. Were you jump, jumping in with the institutional perspective? No, I, I just think it's a great, uh, great point that James highlights. And, and but again, I just worry about... Um, I totally agree with everything Jane said, but this isn't that as nebulous as it might sound. It's literally a question of how do we invest for us the na nation's pensions and savings into improving the, the uh, amount and the quality of affordable housing because even the provision of genuinely affordable housing in and of itself benefits health equity, but also um, things like retrofitting that housing that we're spending a huge amount of time working on at the moment, because if people clearly, if they can't afford their fuel bills and they don't heat the homes properly, that will dramatically reduce, reduce life expectancy. So there's a lot of genuine 
The only word you can use and don't want to be melodramatic is injustice or inequality in, in this that we as businesses can address whilst, you know, as Jane quite rightly highlights, making a perfectly fair return that we can use to pay people's pensions. But it's just going to require a bit harder work and a bit more thinking out of the box and a bit more creativity and a bit more drive to do the right thing and improve people's lives than we as an industry have perhaps exhibited <laughs> in the past. Uh, but that's the excitement of it. That, you know, that's, what this, that's why there's so many people here and that's why I'm, I'm so chuffed about that. So, yeah, brilliant. And if I can just add, I think one common criticism of, of ESG progress generally seems to be the lack of consistent, reliable metrics. And I think when, when you're looking at health, and actually it's great to have studies in isolation that points out, and you look at them and think, wow, this makes complete sense. But I think for real estate to really be driving forward um, health, well-being, we need to be all collaborating. We need to be sharing information. We need to be sharing case studies um, and feeding that back so that everyone gets on the same page and so you can see. So you talked about housing, I think, in the office as well. There are clear studies showing actually how focusing on health and well-being can lead to increased employee productivity, which is, I think, more relevant than ever, trying to lure people back into the office post-pandemic. And actually, it's really promoting those examples of what we're seeing, the impact, um, and, and in housing as well, um, in all areas. And I think that's going to be driving things forward and, and making change. Brilliant. Thank you, James. I finally got your question on the screen here as well, but I'm glad you could, you could do it in real time for us. I think we had a question back on this side as well. Morning. Dr. Sophie Tosin from Care Consulting. I very much come to ESG from a health policy perspective. I was in the Department of Health for way too many years. Um, I'm particularly interested in the wider impact the industry can have really in reducing health inequalities across the built environment because we know there are massive issues with public realm. You know, we saw with the recent heat wave just in terms of tree coverage in, you know, street from street. I'm interested in your views on how the built environment industry can have that wider impact. What are the sorts of questions that investors, planners, occupiers, local communities should be demanding answers to? If I can uh, of course. Uh, address this, uh, I think if we want to start with the the largest of the, the scale of impact that I think that the sector, as mentioned, accounting for 40% of uh, global emissions can have. Um, you know, the, the health of human population is, uh, uh, responds uh, very directly to uh, extreme climate events and is uh, unfortunately affected negatively by it. Uh, this is a known fact. Uh, it's very close to home as well. We might have experienced some of that. but. Um, I think if we are looking then at, uh, at the uh, global map, then you'll, you'll start to realize that actually inequalities are happening uh, more in uh, more vulnerable countries. And so extreme weather events affect health uh, more heavily there. So we have to take that into consideration. We're also learning that there's a direct link between um, climate change and uh, the spread of some diseases in geographical areas that were not affected before. Again, probably not in the United Kingdom, but we have to look at the global scale. Uh, there was a paper published by Nature Climate Change last month uh, that actually gave a number to this scale of influence on pathogenic uh, diseases that are, uh, for 58% of them, increased uh, by the effect of climate change. And so 
uh, as a sector globally, I think these are the numbers that we should be looking at. And so that's why I think, um, you know, uh, climate crisis is, the, is a health crisis as well. Um, but obviously you mentioned about community, and I think that's also a very, uh, a very important piece. Um, again, I think it was mentioned before that we need more measurables in terms of how do we, to ensure that we deliver uh, and that there is no greenwashing because, you know, um, now 20 years into the <coughs> studying of how to report on carbon emissions, now we finally are getting into an agreement of a net zero UK definition of net zero. Uh, we are just starting to measure those social outcomes. And so we are at the beginning of this, but uh, we can build up on, on this. And so we can, first of all, understand what needs to be done. We can measure progress of social well-being and also in context, which is very important, I think. And ultimately, I think we have uh, a number of certifications that we can already uh, put in place to ensure that we have, uh, well, a, a good agenda, I think a program uh, for our buildings to ensure that there is access to daylight, well-being, uh, access to uh, uh, biophilia, healthy materials, and that there is a degree of fairness within our supply chain. I think one of the things I'd like to add to that is that at a simple level, the, it'll be interesting to see from Pete's point of view, for every pound invested, what's the social impact? So I think the biggest thing the real estate, invest, the, the real estate um, sector can do is maybe invest in the regions. So a pound invested in London, what's its social impact? D don't know. Um, a pound invested in Leeds, what's its social impact? What I do know is, and talking about housing, um, and talk, you know, from a, an investment point of view, um, and, and you're saying it's, you know, it, it, it's a good investment, when you start to do the appraisals on it, an investor are looking to say, I can put my money somewhere else and I can get a better, I can get a better return and an easier return and less risk. And I think that's the problem, that there's, there's um, better margins, shall we say, and safer margins to be made round here. And it's making decisions outside the region um, and I keep coming about LNG, but to be fair, um, LNG, it's not common. And LNG is absolutely unique um, in that one, it invested in Newcastle, and then even more um, uh, significant, they invested their money in Sunderland. And Sunderland is, you know, it's, it's at the end of a road. People, you know, I'm saying this is Georgia, <laughs> but that's not true. It's, it's, um, yeah, we're getting into football. Let's not go there. Um, but it is, it hasn't had a great deal of investment over the years. But I would say LNG are a one-off. And I've got a lot of clients down here who are very proud of the fact that they only invest in the West End. And they, they only do that because that's what shareholders want. So shareholders are, for me, the, a lot of the ESG agenda is being driven by shareholders. So they're the ones that are saying, OK, um, tell me about your ESG principles. And, and they are very much focusing around carbon because we can measure that. The S is a bit more difficult. I don't think people are looking at it. But maybe if some of the, the biggest impact, if some of the investors could actually accept, I'm going to take a little bit more risk, I'm going to take less margin, and the, the social impact... I don't, have you got an answer to that question? A pound invested in the South well, from a social impact point of view as a pound invested... But you, in the... You've got to bear in mind the, you know, Barking, someone in Barking, average yeah, yeah, health yeah. and life expectancy yeah. is 55 years. Yeah. Richmond, 
Yeah. I think it's 76. So, yeah. so even across London, there's incredible inequality. But I, I thank you. Thanks for the kind words. I do take your point. And, and this is why we, as a big, again, this isn't about LNG because it's what every investor can do. Um, you know, uh, engaging with Sainsbury's about the living wage. And we've we kind of had a whole Sunday Times article panning our approach and telling us we were being woke. Uh, but, you know, this is why we as a major shareholder are engaging with the likes of Kellogg's and, and Sainsbury's, because your point's absolutely right. We, we have kind of levers, um, and many people in this room will represent institutions that they can pull that aren't just built environment ones, so they're, they're, it's really important. And that, that, but that idea of putting a pound sign on social impact, that's a huge challenge in itself, right? It's not, there's, no, there's not an easy exchange rate there that you can talk about. A pound invested um, equals X amount, and however you can define that, of social impact. There, there is something, actually, that the, that the local authorities and um, so the, private, the public set has got really um, sorted is the TOMS yeah. framework. Yeah. So that does... The, the TOMS framework basically says, we're just putting a submission in for a, a framework in the north... Um, uh, you know, through our architectural business. And basically what it says is how much... OK, you're going to win this contract and you're going to get so many pounds um, fee income over the next five years. So you make your commitment in relation to social value. So we're going to say we're going to give X number of hours to schools, we're going to employ so many apprentices. And the Tom's framework has a spreadsheet and you type it in, I don't know how it does it, and um, does something magic, magical and basically says, for your, you're going to commit and you're going to generate £600,000 worth of equivalent social value. Um, whether that's true or not, it's definitely a metric. Yeah. Um, and I think it is. So, so maybe the private sector has got something to learn from the public sector and maybe... Um, clients in the private sector could start using that framework and at least it's measurable and maybe we're talking about contracts could you put it into a, a contract don't, don't know but that's something maybe is a good thing about. yeah we, we use that for both um procurement mm -hmm. and also for, for development as, as well and i think what's what's really helpful about that is that you can vary that at the local level so so you can actually determine that at the local level and I think it's interesting, we're talking about um, a very large scale here, but let me share with you a practical example. So you talk about um, how do you measure this. In Bristol, there's a scheme called Hope Prize, and it's a social housing um, scheme. It's, it's uh, been developed with Z-Pods. The, the environmental quality of the buildings are just incredible. It uses all of the techniques that we've talked about here today, but there's something that makes that scheme really special, because... Um, in one of the properties there, uh, there the are residents who are community builders. So it's not just about the environmental impact of the building, but there are people who, who live there that, whose role it is is to build the community. And, and um, they're able to do that. They live there at a peppercorn rent, but they work with um, the predominantly young people that come into that scheme who've come through the homelessness route. Now, you can't get a better example of social value than, than looking at a scheme like that. And we can accelerate that. We, we, we can expand that. We can, we can do that across our cities and make that really huge difference. And, and I, do, I am going to disagree with you, because I do think for an investor, particularly around social housing and affordable housing, because of the certainties around it, in the long term to, in medium to long term, it is a good investment. We've got, um, we've got a question on Slido here about the benefits of health and well-being standards like FitWell and, and, and Well. Um, 
Divya, I wonder if you've got a view from, from the design perspective on how they influence what we're talking about. Today. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with certifications, I'm particularly, I don't like to rely too much on them. I think they're an incredible backbone and it's something that everybody understands when they're signing on to or when we're talking about well, when we're talking about Briam, everybody understands it. And I think that's an incredibly important backbone. It can be certified so people can't just say, oh yeah, I'm Briam. No, you have to actually certify it. You need to go through the requirements. So I think that is, it's an incredibly good backbone, but it certainly isn't all. And just because you have a well building doesn't mean that your building is an incredible place for health and well-being because there's a lot of mix and matches that you can do inside these certifications. So how we like to use them is as as a baseline, essentially, and then just understand the context of the building that we're working in, trying to be more, having more stakeholder engagement, listening to the people that, especially in refurbishment works, how was their experience working in that building? the people outside, the neighboring communities, which is still something that I see in a lot of projects. People have stakeholder engagements, but it feels like a policy ticking exercise. And actually, where is that feedback? It's not as good as it should be after we do that stakeholder engagement, getting back to all the teams, the architects, the engineers saying, hey, this is what they're talking about. How can we implement this? So it's, yeah, it's a good baseline, but there's so much more and we can't really rely on them fully. And if I could just add, so I, I'm seeing quite a few clients um, in developments pushing for well or fit well certification, um, and it's great if a, if a landlord can deliver that, but that's only, if it stops there, it, 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 it's not necessarily going to go very far, and I think actually engagement with tenants and collaboration is, is really key to actually maintaining that, so um, it can't just be handed over and then the lease be silent on what the tenant has to do to adhere to those standards and promote well-being and health itself, so I think I think that landlords and tenants really need to be on the same page um, for buildings with well, fit well certifications to be, to be driving change. And, and I think it probably, from a transactional perspective, needs to be considered at head stage. I think you need to be looking at well, how, can we, how can we document that collaboration. So green lease clauses, and I'm, I'm using green quite broadly here because I think it covers more than E these days. Um, but also ancillary documents like building regulations, estate regulations, sharing of information so that actually it's not just the certification at, at the beginning or whenever it gets recertified, but it's there's data coming out throughout the lease term about actually the impact that the building's having, um, and then that can then form its own baseline um, for the market. Um, Rob, you, to jump to a point you, you were touching on earlier about your approach as a business leader, mm -hmm. and you mentioned... Um, being influenced by the views maybe of younger mm. team members. Um, are we seeing, do you think, in businesses something of a, a sort of generational shift in terms of, in terms of perhaps a younger generation with different priorities, different views, starting to influence strategy to, to some extent? Absolutely. From a business point of view, absolutely. <clears throat> I'm a, I spend my time just trying to understand um, Generation Zs, Millennials. Um, I'm, a, I'm a Generation X. Um, and I'm not saying that in a, in a bad way. I, I'm, I'm leading our business, so I need to understand the people in our business. And the, you know, the, the significant proportion of our people are um, Zs and Millennials, and they think completely differently to me. Um, 
and that's not good or bad, it's just different. And if you're, you're leading a business, you need to understand your people. And I think a lot of this is just expected now, quite rightly. Um, so um, your environmental um, standards as an organisation, um, your you know, best companies kind of thing, you've, I think you've got to be able to demonstrate that you are a, um, a business that cares. Um, and then actually, I think, again, someone like myself who's getting a bit older, longer in the tooth, it, it's something that becomes increasingly important to you and you appreciate that, um, certainly for me, it's the value we can bring in business and it sort of gets me probably more excited than the bottom line. As long as the bottom line's doing well, I just think that the leverage we can bring to communities and the difference we can make to... I mean, the, um, the, uh, the, the whole climate... Um, emergency absolutely terrifies me. It really does, and that's people. It's always something I've been interested in. But over the last, some of the things we're seeing, like the things in Pakistan and all these you know, sort of things that are happening, you think, "Wow, this is what's going on in our world." It's truly scary. Um, and so we can, in our sector, we can we can make a difference. So, um, ab absolutely, and one of the biggest things in business now, in particular, is is recruiting great people um, and and keeping them. Um, so, yeah, it's absolutely essential to business now. And you touch on, I mean, you, you can't forget the bottom line, of course. Is there a, is there a challenge in companies, uh, you know, understanding? At the moment, we've got, you know, recession looming, difficult times ahead. Is there a risk that businesses think this topic is, it, it's too, it's going to be too costly, it's going to be too complex for, for us to, to deal with and, and pushing it back down the to-do list? I could, I could maybe have a go <clears throat> go there, and, it, and it, I think it plays to some of the points that Rob was making earlier. I mean, the, the reason we're investing in the likes of Sunderland and Newcastle is because we, we, we want to move away from an extractive model where people give their pensions and savings to the city and then it disappears off into a Bloomberg screen to be reinvested back into places. And so the whole theory of change that we have, and the re I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, of Tom's, but we can discuss that another day, but the whole aim of what we're trying to do with this is to identify where there is a local need for investment and partner with the likes of Sunderland City Council to say, right, there's a need here. Um, the reason that, if, if, in case the, the link is not, the reason why that answers the question from my perspective is if you are investing for the longer term, um, and, and Jane's comments really touch on this, to meet long-term social need, you are de-risking your investment because being the first investment I made in this role was 4,000 social homes across the country, the majority of which were in Preston. Some of my investment colleagues, you know, were not that convinced this wasn't an office in the West End, this was social housing in Preston, and it might not be quite such a good return. But guess what? There's continued to be a need for social housing in Preston throughout the entire duration of this investment. It's done really well. It's not made us millionaires, but it's been perfect for meeting pension commitments. So the point I'm trying to make is, is actually, if you do this right, the economy can fluctuate and go all over the place, but you've invested in things that society needs and you will get a better long-term risk-adjusted return by doing that and meet your social role and you know, invest people's pensions back into their areas. Yep. Um, we've got about five minutes left. Just thought, let's open it up to the floor again if anyone has a question. Yes, right at the front. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of going back to the question about the wealth standard, but obviously in most discourses, health is swiftly followed by the word and wellness and well-being. Is that a helpful way of addressing health equity, or do you find people get distracted by wellness and well-being? 
because it's more accessible at the expense of truly getting into the nitty-gritty of health. Uh, is it specific to the well-building standard, or are you just talking more about generally. the health of well-being? So uh, professionals like myself who have uh, worked in the sustainability area 20 years, but uh, we, we've been approaching the topic from, it was called comfort and then well-being, then health and well-being, wellness. And so the names have shifted to a point that I think today we're also discussing about adding another letter to an acronym. So the, the landscape has changed. Uh, I think um, the, when we talk about health equity, we are connecting, I think, uh, a, a social element to the same agenda. And that's, I think, the new uh, aspect of a problem that was already a wicked problem before, where uh, we're, we're probably adding complexity in that respect but the solutions were there before. Uh, well is a solution as a building standard. The whole health and well-being credits in the BREEAM are a solution as well. There is a number of pockets of solutions. What we are doing now, I think, is connecting all the social value solutions to a number of solutions that were already there through uh, certifications, tools, uh, technological, air quality, measuring systems. And so, um, I think it's starting to shape into a more tangible framework to me. That's my own opinion. I think that when we, but to, to your answer, I think essentially when we are adding the equity stuff, we're um, increasing our sense of responsibility to an agenda that was pre-existing, if that's my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, it's, I think it's actually useful that these terms are, are being more well-known and, and saying health and well-being. I think it's, it's a useful thing because if you start separating too much, then it can get lost. And previously now, of course, there's so much more about mental and, and mental well-being. But before, if you just mentioned that, these targets and things that you had to do maybe could be downgraded a lot. But when now all of those are included into the same umbrella, there's a lot more um, strength in putting those things together. I think it's been quite useful. Excellent. OK, well, I think that is almost us out of time for, um, for the first panel. So please, if you could show your appreciation to our first guests this morning. <laughs> <laughs>